text is going to talk about the household of God, and it's giving us instructions on how the household is supposed to function. Whether or not you ascribe to a biblical view of how the household functions and accept, you know, the biblical teaching on how a, a husband is to lead the household, the wife is to submit to the leadership, the children are to submit to the leadership or not, you have some sort of philosophy that would guide uh, your family or would guide what you would view as the ideal family. We all have an idea of what this all is supposed to look like. And God gives clear instructions as to how the household of a family is supposed to look. And he also gives very clear instructions on what the household of his church is supposed to look like. And so as he's wrapping up the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to the Galatian church. And as he does so, he's instructing them about how the church is supposed to function with one another. He's already introduced them the idea of salvation by grace through faith, and he's emphasized that it's by faith alone, and this is a principle that's taught in the Old Testament and is continued in the New Testament. It's always been by faith alone that one comes into the household, so to speak. He's then introduced this idea of living by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, and he tells us that when we fail to walk by the Spirit, when we fail to live by the Spirit, our life is going to be characterized by all sorts of evil things. And he gives that list of what the works of the flesh are and what the works of the spirit are. And then that moves right into this passage. And so for us to read through Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 10 to, to understand those passages and to live out this passage requires that the truths from the previous chapters be evident in our lives. Number one, that we have come to Christ and we receive the gift of salvation by faith alone. Nothing of my own works, nothing of my church attendance or anything like that. It's simply by faith Christ declares me righteous. But that's not where God wants to leave any of us. Instead, he has a plan to bring us all into maturity as believers. And that is done as you and I submit ourselves to the Spirit, and we walk by the Spirit. We walk by faith. He's already talked about that. And now as he enters into this last section, what he's doing is, I believe he's giving us three big ideas with a concluding idea about how we're supposed to function as the body of Christ. Taking into all the contexts before that, I think he boils it down to three big ideas. And the responsibilities that we have with one another. He says we have the responsibility to restore erring believers. We have the responsibility to bear with others. We have the responsibility to care for leadership within the church. And he sums that all up and he gives us a promise. And he tells us not only is there a promise attached to this, but there's just the command that this is what you're supposed to do. So do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So how does the household of faith, how is the church supposed to operate? I believe that is the answer, that is the question that Paul is answering here. I think you could boil the theme down to love and care for the members of the household of faith. You and I are to love and care for the members of the household of faith. If you would take your Bible and let's read through Galatians chapter 6. We'll read from verse 1 all the way through verse 10. Brethren, 
If a man is overtaken and they trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Consider to yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoice. He will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, we do thank you for your instruction that you give us on how we are to function as a church, how we are to care for one another, how we are to seek to minister to one another. We pray that you would use these words to strengthen our resolve to care for one another and to do so according to the guidelines and the instructions that you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen. As he begins in verse 1, he gives us the first command. Unlike this morning where the only command in the text was, come and reason, come and think with me, and then he tells us that we're supposed to watch out for sins that are omission sins. This text is just chock full of commands that he gives to you and I. Things that he just says, you're supposed to be doing this. This is what you're supposed to do. Do this. And so in verse 1, he introduces us to that first command. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so he's assuming that, he's uh, beginning with the assumption that some people within the body of Christ will fall into sin. That's probably not life-altering to you. Um, you see it in your own families. You see it in your life on a regular basis. We sin. And so the author, Paul, is writing to the Galatians, and he tells them people are going to sin within the local church. And when they do sin, you have a responsibility. And so he says, you, we, are entrusted with coming alongside those who fall into sin. And as you come alongside them, you're, you're seeking to not simply rebuke them and tell them, hey, that was really wrong. You should not have done that. Um, re repent. Rather, there's this, this gentleness and this care, this love that is immediately evidenced in this rebuke, right? Because he goes on and he says, how do we do this? He tells us in verse 1, as you come alongside the person who's fallen into some sin, you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The book of Galatians uses the word spirit numerous times. If you look through chapter 5, you see it later on in chapter 6, even in the passage we read in verse 8 and 9. Most of the time when he uses that word, it's in reference to the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And yet here he's using it as the attitude. What is your attitude when you go and you confront somebody in sin? And he says... 
The attitude that you and I should approach someone who's in sin with is one of gentleness. It's not harsh. It's not overbearing. It's not overlording. Rather, it is gentle. It is loving. It is caring. It's seeking to restore that person. The end goal is not that you would confront a sin and that through confronting that sin that they would be chased away never to come into the church again or never to associate with any of us again. Rather, the goal is to confront them in such a way that they see that our love for them is evident. It is clear that we have a deep passion for seeing them live for Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply tell us some people are going to fall into sin. You are entrusted to come alongside them and seek to restore them into fellowship. Do so in a gentle and loving, kind way goes on and he says there's a reason we do all this and the reason isn't simply so that the church you know has more people or something like that or simply that God would be honored he says there is a danger when we confront sin and he says the danger is that we would fall into sin ourselves what's he specifically talking about I think he's going to develop this idea even more in verses 2 through 5. But I think he's introducing us to the idea that as you and I have opportunity, as we have responsibility to come alongside another Christian and to confront them about sin in their life, there can be a temptation within us to look at their sin that has become evident. And as we look at that, we boast in the fact that our sin is not so evident or is not as widely known to the surrounding community. Or we minimize our sin that is known by the surrounding community, and we assume that because you know we have tiered our sin as a lower tier sin than their sin, that you know we're just okay. And so he says, no, you have to watch out for yourself because the temptation is as we confront sin is that you and I would be puffed up, we would boast in our own sin, and we would fail to get right with God about our own sin as we, we come alongside another believer and seek to restore them to Christ. And so he's really calling upon you and I to do two things, right? You and I have the responsibility to be watching out for one another, getting to know one another so that when we see somebody who is sinning or maybe we look at their life and as we examine, you know, their patterns in church attendance or we examine their their behavior in their home or we see something that they post on Facebook or some recreational thing that they mention, they participate in, we can come alongside them and say, I don't know all the details, but that concerns me. How can I help you grow in this? So there's a call to be in relationship. There's a call to then take that relationship and be willing to confront sin. But there's also the need for you and I to continually be watching our hearts so that we do not fall into sin ourselves. We do not become boastful and arrogant and prideful, which is something that James has repeatedly rebuked the believers in the book of James about. It's a common, easy sin for you and I to fall into. And so he warns us about that. But as we think about how we function as a local church, how we function as a church body, 
Paul says one of the responsibilities that you and I have is to restore each other when we sin. It's a different responsibility than the responsibility that you know you have as a husband, where you're supposed to love your wife, provide for your wife, protect your wife, or as a wife who's supposed to nurture the children, care for the children, and submit to her husband as as a father is supposed to nurture and teach his children, and children are to obey, submit to their parents, respect their parents. But the, the, the picture that Paul is developing is, just as those common ideas are so foundational for a, for a family to function in a way that honors God and produces the results that God has in plan for a family household, for the church to flourish and grow and become as mature as the church should, you and I are responsible to find ways to restore other believers. And so, as you think about it, how have you historically done in going about restoring other believers when you've seen areas of sin in their life? Maybe that you simply suspect because of, you know, some pretty strong evidence. Or maybe because of something that you've seen that is just, it's a sin. There's no way to interpret it another way. It's just, it's wrong. And he's calling upon us to examine the evidence as we see problems, to confront problems, to address the problems. So that the church flourishes and grows. He moves on and he begins to develop a second idea. He's going to continue to develop some of the boasting, arrogant idea that he's introduced at the end of verse 1. But here he's introducing a new command. And I think it has a more uh, broad broad um, application. Verse 1 specifically deals with how you and I address someone who is sinning. I think verse 2 and following backs off from the sin aspect a little bit more. Because not all my burdens and not all your burdens are necessarily sin in your life or my life, right? Sometimes there's all sorts of other different burdens that you and I face. They are sometimes sin, but sometimes it may be a financial need that we have. It might be a, um, a family difficulty that we're going through, a, a health crisis or something like that, right? And so he's saying, not only do you have the responsibility to restore someone who's sinned, but you also have the responsibility to come alongside each other and bear with one another as they go through different difficulties. Look with me at verses 2 through verse 5. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be, to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Upon first reading, that text seems a little confusing, right? Because in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. And so it's like you have two different instructions. The first instruction in verse 2 is, hey, bear each other's burdens. And then verse 5 is like, you know, just worry about yourself. So, is there a middle ground in between? 
does the second command negate the first command so we can just forget about everybody else's burdens and just worry about our own, like verse 5 says? What's going on here, right? The first reading is like, that's kind of weird. Like, Paul, did you fall asleep while you're writing this? And he kind of woke up a little groggy and kept writing. That's not what happened, okay? But upon first reading, it gives us questions, right? Immediately causes us to go, okay. There's some stuff to work through and think through here. It's a little more difficult than a, you know, immediate reading. And, and so he introduces the first idea and he says, we are entrusted with caring for the needs of all believers. I think this is a lot more broad. I've already said that. And I think he's continuing to develop this idea that he introduced in verse 1. In verse 1, it talks about considering yourselves lest you also be tempted. I think the temptation he's specifically speaking of is the temptation that you and I would have to boast in or to think that we are better than other people because we didn't sin in the same way that they sinned or we're not struggling in the same way that they're struggling. And you see that pointed to in verse 3. He gives the command, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For, so he's giving us a cause or a reason for what he's previously said. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so he's introducing us to this idea that you and I would be tempted to boast in our perceived maturity. It's easy for us to deceive ourselves, to think that one thing is true when it's not actually true. It's interesting, he's going to repeat this word again, right, in the text. In verse 7, he's going to tell us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It's a common refrain that we see in this text. Why? Because it's so easy for us to confuse ourselves about what is actually true and what God has actually called us to do. And so he says, watch out. Be careful about how you view yourself. As you work with people and restoring them, as you bear one another's burdens, as you help people, do not look at yourself as if for some reason you're so much better than them because you're not struggling with that sin or you're not struggling with those same crises in your life. He moves on in verse 4 and he says, The antidote to our temptation to boast is an honest evaluation of our, of our desires. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. I believe what he is communicating here is that as you and I examine ourselves, we evaluate our actions, we evaluate our desires, our responses to situations, our temptations to boast, our own situations and sin, our own trials that we are called upon to bear in our own personal lives. What do we notice in all those situations? Where's my source of hope? Where's my source of triumph in the trials that I face? It doesn't come from within me. It's not because, you know, I made it to church so many more times than they did, and so, you know, that's why I am able to overcome the tribulation. I mean, coming to church helps, okay, but it's not because you're simply warming a seat that you're better. Instead, as we honestly evaluate our own lives, 
the fact that I haven't fallen into this sin or that sin is because there's a greater hero than myself. And the greater hero is Christ. Christ is the one who has strengthened me. Christ is the one who has given me his grace so that I can live a life that is honoring and glorifying to him. Christ is the hero in my story. Christ is the hero in your story. And so as we look at our life and we rejoice, we're rejoicing, yes, in what Christ has done in me. Not what I've done through my own hard work or what I've done through my own religious ambitions. Instead, the focus, the glory, as we accurately reflect upon the situation, is not one that turns to then boast in, look at who I am and what I've accomplished. Instead, the focus is, look at who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished in and through me to bring me to this point. And so he says, restore believers. Find areas where other believers are struggling with sin and come alongside them and care for and nurture them in a loving, gentle fashion. As you see people going through trials, as you see people suffering because of the load of sin that they are involved in, you come alongside them and you seek to bear those burdens with them. But once again, the refrain is, the temptation of my heart, of your heart, is that as we come alongside, we would boast in the fact that we don't see that same kind of sin. Or we could boast in the fact that, you know, I mean, look, this person's growing. This person's not struggling with the same sin. Look at how great I am. I am such a key component in their spiritual walk. If it wasn't for me, think of where they would be. See how easy it is for our hearts to deceive us as we work with people? And so Paul is constantly reminding the Galatians, these are your responsibilities. He's not writing to pastors. He's writing to the local church. It's the book of Galatians. And he's telling the local church how they are to function with one another, how they are to love and care for one another. But he's constantly reminding them, you, the temptation of your heart, the temptation of my heart, is to seek self-serving pride. And to find our hope in that, to make ourselves the Savior while we supposedly point the individual that needs help to Christ and tell them they're the Savior. Meanwhile, our pride says what? Our pride says, I'm the Savior of my own situation. And so he's constantly saying, point people to Christ and constantly be reminding yourself of the need of Christ. Because he is the solution for all mankind. You bear the primary responsibility then for bearing your trials. So while, while you have a responsibility to come alongside me and to assist me, and I have a responsibility to come alongside you and assist you as you go through trials, as you go through burdens that you're called upon to bear, that God designs for and uniquely gives each one of you. The ultimate responsibility for how I respond to the trials that God brings into my life, the ultimate responsibility for how you respond to the trials that God brings into your life, is not the person sitting next to you. 
fail to respond correctly to a trial, the ultimate responsibility lands on you. The church should seek to come alongside you and comfort you, encourage you, strengthen you. But if you choose to toss aside the church's assistance, the church's desire to strengthen and encourage your resolve to live godly in this present age, then the ultimate responsibility of that is yours. And so he, he reminds us, don't boast, bear one another's burdens, don't make yourself the hero. You are never the hero of the story. God is always the hero of the story. He's the hero of their story as they bear through that burden with your help. And he's your hero as you're able to come alongside them and help. Because it's not my natural inclination to help. It's easier to sit at home and do nothing. But that's not what we're commanded to do. Because that's not how a healthy household functions. A healthy household of God functions as we restore one another to fellowship with God and with one another, and as we come alongside people who are struggling, who may be tempted to sin, and we find ways to strengthen and encourage their resolve to live another day walking by faith as they submit themselves to the Spirit. He moves on, and, and, and I'm not trying to imply anything about my pay, okay? It's just in the text, all right? So the, the purpose is primarily the first two. He brings up the third one, and I'm preaching through the text, so I'm going to bring up the third one. But my purpose is not to try to imply I need more pay or anything like that, okay? It's just in the text. It's the natural flow of the text. Go yell at Paul, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to imply anything. But he moves on, and he says the next step is what? He moves on, and as he begins to describe this in verses 6 through 7, what he talks about is sharing in resources with leaders. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And you might include verse 8 in that. I've chosen to put 8 with the second section because he continues this reaping imagery even through verses 9 and 10, I believe. What he's saying is you have a responsibility to care for the needs of those who teach you. And he, he continues to develop that idea, and he says we are easily deceived about the character of God. And what he's getting at is God's character is one that cares for your needs. And so be willing to give of what you have to care for the pastor, and God will allow you to reap what you sow. That's the idea. That's the principle that he provides here. I think he continues to use that imagery, though, as he concludes the whole section. Because as he concludes the whole section, he really ends it on this big note about just do good to everybody. Okay? Do good to one another. He specifically narrows it down at the end, and he says, do good specifically to people who are in the household of God, specifically to people who are covenanted together with us in this local church. He gets that narrow, but he really is also quite broad at some points, where he says, just do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of God. 
So what does all that look like? What does it look like for you and I to seek to minister to one another intentionally, purposefully, and seek to see good done in your life, and you seek to be, have good done in my life? In verse 8, he continues this imagery. The, the, the question that you have to answer is, the verse 8, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Does the four connect simply with verses 6 and 7, or does the four connect further back in the text? And it seems to me that it connects further back in the text, at least to verse 1. But then you also have imagery and words that are commonly used in chapter 5, verse 16 and following. So you have, sows the spirit, and uh, sows the fle his flesh will reap of the flesh. And then um, in chapter 5, verse 16 and following, you have the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh that are paralleled and contrasted so often. So it seems to me that he's even... Um, He's even pulling from some of that material, and he's assuming that you have um, probably a little bit more of an understanding of that text than um, I'm assuming that you have tonight. Okay, I, I'm assuming that you have probably more than maybe you do, but I, I wanted to cover this. Um, but pretty much, um, he's calling upon believers, those who have placed their faith in Christ, to submit themselves to the Spirit, and as they do so, it's going to be demonstrated through the works of, or the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, let me just read through some of those. Starting in chapter 5, verse 22, um, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Um, and then in the, the works of the flesh <coughs> are in verse 19 and following. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he's, he's hearkening back to that passage where he's talked about the works of the flesh and those who sow to the flesh, those who pursue living by the flesh and submit to the flesh and just live that way, what are they going to reap? They're going to reap the works of the flesh in verses 19 and following. And those who instead choose to submit themselves to the Spirit and live according to the Spirit, what are they going to reap? They're going to reap the fruit of the Spirit. And so as he's concluding, he says, For he who sows of his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows the Spirit will of the Spirit reap eternal life. We must remain committed to the mission we have been entrusted with. And I think this is where he's just kind of summarizing and trying to encompass all the commands that he's given us, the three commands, to restore, to bear the burdens of one another, to share with leaders. And I think he's just trying to Put all that into a concise statement in verses 9 and 10. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I think what he's getting at is the commands that he's given in verse 1, the command that he gives in verse 2, the command that he gives in verse 6, they're not easy commands. It's not easy to come alongside somebody 
to his sins. And sometimes they're not immediately repentant. And seek to be gentle with somebody and seek to restore them. Now there comes a point where you're no longer gentle, you're no longer patient. But you are commanded to be patient with everybody. And so that's tiring. It's hard. It drains people. It's not easy to constantly come alongside somebody that you know is going through a trial and seek to encourage them and strengthen them in their resolve to live another day faithfully for God. It's not easy for us to lose our resources to care for somebody else, right? It's not. And, and so he says, these are good things. These, this, is, this is the model that God has given for how the church is to function. Do not grow weary in doing these good things. This is the recipe. This is the handbook that has been given to the church on how a church functions and grows in maturity. Do not grow tired of this plan. It's the only plan that you've been given. You can't abandon it. And then he gives a really hope-filled promise, right? Because in the middle of, you know, whatever you view as tedious, uh, I remember when Bethany and I were, you know, working towards getting married, um, we made our own invitations for a wedding. Um, I don't think any of you got invited because we didn't know any of you at the time. Sorry. But um, we had like a little picture of me, and then there was a, a little parchment piece that went over it. And the parchment piece had writing on it, or the picture had, okay, the parchment piece had writing on it. And then we had like two little holes punched into both pieces of paper, and we had ribbon that we would um, tie. I didn't tie. I hate that stuff. <laughs> All right? That to me is. Um, like tying little ribbons for hundreds of invitations. Don't sign me up, okay? That's that's tedious. Um, I grow weary in well doing with that. Like um, big projects where I don't have to like. I don't want to do that, okay? And, and so, you know, you have temptations to grow weary, okay? And, and Paul's assuming that. Um, just maybe you love you know tying little ribbons. That makes that's your thing. That's great. But Paul's assuming that we will all at some point be tempted to grow weary in doing these good things, restoring other believers where it's that coming alongside other believers who need somebody to encourage them as they go through a difficult time, sharing in our resources with those who lead spiritually. And he says, don't do it. Because there's, there's hope, there's light. And he says, if we do not lose heart, what happens? We will reap. He doesn't say that the church is going to grow from 30 members to 100 members. That, that could happen, but that's not what he's talking about, necessarily. Instead, what he's saying is, the people who are currently here who are participating will be growing. You will be mature. You will become more like Christ. It's, it's great if we pick up more people as we go. We can make more disciples of Jesus Christ. That's great. 
But at the very least, the people who are here will be pointed to Christ. We will be reminding ourselves as we are tempted to give in, as we are tempted to boast in our own abilities as we minister to others, that it's all about Christ. That's, that's sharpening us. That's training us into godliness. And then finally, he says, we will receive our promised reward in the proper time. Do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have our, um, sorry, verse 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of it's a, it's a very broad, um, very broad statement. You and I are entrusted with pursuing the good of all people. Now, sometimes how people define good is not good. Okay, you have to be wise uh, with your resources, your time, your finances, etc. As you pursue good for all people, because people will come and tell you this is good, and it's not always good. Okay. But as you examine scripture and you examine situations and you find opportunities to pursue good for all people, the text tells us to pursue it. It says, especially for those who are of the household of faith. And I think as you look at the context, what specifically is he talking about? I think he's talking about the three commands he's just given us. That you and I have the responsibility to come alongside believers to restore them to fellowship with Christ, to restore them to fellowship with other believers. And I have a responsibility to be watching out for people who may need some encouragement, some strength at this point in their Christian life. Because the stress and the trials and difficulties that they're encountering are difficult, and they will be tempted to wander from where they're supposed to be and come alongside them to encourage them, to strengthen them, to pursue Christ's likeness, to share in our resources with those who lead and teach. he ends with, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the game plan. This is what you and I are entrusted with. This is how the church is to function. This is the plan. It, it, it's remarkable that it's, you know, very similar to like every other passage we've looked at for the last like month and a half, right? It's like um, deja vu on Sunday nights, right? But I'm trying to demonstrate to you that this is the plan. You will not find another plan. And so how do we effectively seek to incorporate some of these ideas? I think that the one of the best ways that our culture is currently seen work out in various churches is to install smaller groups of believers that intimately know each other and can seek to see opportunities to restore more quickly, to see opportunities to bear with one another. You know, you don't really get the third option really very well in a small group setting. That's not really um, the, the, hot, the hot spot for, you know, that. But some of these ideas, they're really done well as we get to know each other and know where there's potential problems and there are problems so that we can more quickly, more intimately or purposefully address the problems that are coming up. And so as we as we conclude, 
God's plan entrusts you with ministering to others. Okay? God's plan entrusts me also. Okay? I'm not, I'm not removing myself from the equation. But the commands to restore, the command to bear, are entrusted to the church at large. I think it's guided by, at least at some times, I, mean, I don't think every time you have to restore a believer because they, you know, do something that's wrong, you have to come and tell pastor and get pastor involved, but please don't, like, especially in your homes, like, my word, I don't need that much drama in my life, right? I mean, there's appropriate times to come and ask the pastor to be involved, but he's, he's equipping, he's entrusting the ministry to one another, to us, to all of us. It's not simply viewed as something that's a professionally done thing and, you know, we pay him to, you know, make sure that everybody's stepping in line and then we come and we sit and we warm a seat and we go home. There's far more conversation and intimate conversation and fellowship that's pictured in verses um, 1 through 5 of our text than we see on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday night. Right? What we see pictured in verses 1 through 5 is not something that happens very easily as you sit here and listen to me monologue. As much as monologuing is fun, right? At least for me. I, I enjoy speaking. Maybe you don't, but I mean, that's why you get us to listen, I guess, right? But he's, he's entrusting you and I with the responsibility of ministering to other believers. God's plan promises a reward for faithful obedience. And we are entrusted with doing good to the household of faith. And so, how do we how do we practically go about seeking to do some of this? When you see sin, or when there's reasonable cause to be concerned that there's sin. Matthew chapter 18 starts where? If you see your brother in sin, what do you do? You go to them and you confront them in their sin. If they don't listen to you, then what? Then you come and you talk to the pastor. Maybe. You could say, hey, uh, so-and-so sinned. I'm concerned about that sin. Would you go with me and address them? You could go two steps into the process without me ever being aware of the situation seems to be that's what Paul is instructing the Galatian church to do. Like, find ways to minister to one another. Some things may rise to a certain level that, you know, you want to involve me more quickly, but the idea is we minister to, we care for one another. And so as you see opportunities to do that, it's your responsibility, it's your privilege to be able to serve God by addressing sin in the body of Christ. We resist the temptation to boast its ever-presence. We're tempted to either look at the situation that is presenting itself and say, well, you know, I'm glad I never do that. Or we're tempted to look at the situation and go, well, I mean, look at how much I've helped Joe. If it wasn't for me, I mean, Joe would probably be out of the church by now because he just needs me that much. We're, we're tempted to sin in multiple ways, and the text calls us to have a proper view of ourselves. The text calls upon you and I to bear with one another, 
The text calls upon you and I to care for our leaders. But it also gives us promises. Promises that God will allow us to reap if we do not lose heart. God says he's going to accomplish his purpose. He is building his church. And nothing can prevail against that. Especially if we're following his plan, right? It says nothing's going to prevail against my church, and here is the plan. If you follow the plan, he is going to continue to build his church. And so we rejoice in a God who has promises and whose promises are faithful and true and who will accomplish his promises to us. And as we do all this, we do good to one another, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction and the plan that you have given us on how we are to relate to one another, not only in our individual family units and how that's supposed to look, but the fact that you also give us a plan, an instruction book, a manual on how we are to function as a body of Christ, how we are to live in relationship to one another, ministering to one another as we see each other falling into sin, as we see each other facing circumstances that could lead to sin. We pray that we would be intentional, that we would be purposeful, and that we would pursue loving one another and loving you by being willing to be the tools that you have given the body of Emmanuel Baptist Church, to minister to one another's needs. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.